This is a Federal News Network podcast. The vaccine mandate for government contractors has been in limbo for a couple of months since an appeals court decision limited the scope of a nationwide injunction on the mandate made by a lower court. Now the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force has finally updated its website regarding enforcement of the mandate. The main takeaway, there's more guidance to come. For what that means, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with attorney Matthew Hawes, a partner at Jenner and Block. So the big news last time we spoke was that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals had entered its judgment in the appeal of the Southern District's nationwide injunction of the vaccine mandate. So that injunction was the broadest injunction that had been issued. It made things a lot simpler for contracting officers and for contractors in that we knew that anywhere in the country, the vaccine mandate would not be enforced. The 11th Circuit decision upheld the injunction. It found that President Biden did not have the authority under the Federal Property and Administrative Services Act or the Procurement Act to issue that broad of an injunction. But it narrowed the scope of the injunction. It held that it shouldn't be a nationwide injunction, but instead it should only apply to the handful of state governments that brought the case and then to an an industry group, the Associated Builders and Contractors, that also joined the litigation. So that decision left us with a lot of uncertainty about who would be covered by the injunction, We then had a patchwork quilt of different court injunctions that covered smaller geographic locations, smaller groups of plaintiffs, but left a lot of government contractors not subject to an injunction anymore. So in the the wake of that decision, contracting officers, government contractors were left with a ton of uncertainty. And everyone looked towards the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force website for some guidance. We really didn't get a lot in the immediate aftermath of the decision. They moved around, reformatted some things, but kept the wording the same, leading folks to try to guess if that was intentional or was signaling. Then last week, we finally got some clearer guidance, although still a bit of dramatic foreshadowing. So here's what happened last week. Two things. The first is probably only interesting to legal nerds, but there was a procedural matter in terms of appellate law that meant that even though the court decision had been issued a couple months ago, it wasn't actually entered as a judgment until last week on October 18th. And that's because the government was a party and they actually get a longer time period than a private party to ask for a panel review by the entire 11th Circuit. So it was only last week that that time period expired, and the decision of the 11th Circuit from back at the end of August was actually entered as a judgment, as an order from the court. So that means that that's when the nationwide injunction was technically lifted. Well, in anticipation of that, we actually did get a pretty substantive thorough update on the task force website. And they said three things should be expected. Three new guidance documents on how the mandate will be enforced as a result of the 11th Circuit's opinion. It said first, OMB would issue guidance to agencies on how to comply with current injunctions. 
and whether to include the clause enforcing the COVID mandate in new solicitations and contracts. It said that the task force would issue a substantive update to the COVID-19 safety protocols that will be required by contractors. And then third, that OMB would issue guidance to agencies on the timeline for enforcing the clause that points towards the workforce task force guidance when it's already present in a contract. So I, I want to make sure that I, I just have this correct. So the clause is saying that we're going to have enforcement in certain states, but not overall to the entire federal contractor workforce. And so this is the clause that they're referring to, or is the clause mean meaning something else? Yeah. So as you may recall, this has not been a typical rulemaking. The rulemaking was expedited a bit, and what actually happened is that they issued a clause that is inserted into contracts. That's what creates the trigger for contractors. But all the clause really does is tell the contractor to go out and comply with what is on the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force website. So if you're a contracting officer, you're thinking in terms of, do I need to put this clause in a solicitation in a new contract? If you're a contractor, you're looking for that clause in a solicitation in a new contract because that's what starts the ball, roll, ball rolling in terms of your obligation. But the substantive obligation isn't in the clause itself. It's on the Workforce Task Force website. Gotcha. And what can you tell me about the timing of this? Uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, point to do this, almost as if you know th- people are already kind of have contracts on their books for the following year. Um, you know what 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 does that mean to you? What were they trying to say by issuing it now? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting questions about the timing. So you're certainly right that a lot of contracts go out at the end of the government fiscal year. Um, we've had obviously government priorities across a range of issues. All of that is harder when you have this sort of uncertainty. Contractors don't know how to price, how to plan. And so I think there probably was some concern about the uncertainty that this clause hanging out there was creating. And they wanted to give some clearer guidance, both to contracting officers, but also to contractors on what to expect, certainly in the near future. Obviously, the other timing issue is that everything keeps changing with COVID. It's a, it's a moving uh, target. We know we have new variants. They're working on new vaccines. We also have changing public perception of vaccines. We've got a more vaccinated society now. So things look very different than when the workforce task force guidance first came out last year. And I think that's why they wanted to take a step back, have a chance to reevaluate the substantive protocols that will be required. That's obviously the most interesting thing here is what they'll actually do. Will they remove a vaccine mandate, maybe just keep some other uh, mandates about testing or about uh, work workforce uh, spacing or monitoring? It'll be very interesting to see what they do in terms of the substantive requirements. 
Yeah, you said that they did this in order to clear up some uncertainty. Asking your opinion now, did they do that? <laughs> Does this help uh, folks that you're working with understand what they're going to need, at least in the near future, as you know, things, like you said, are still kind of getting settled out? Yeah, it absolutely does. Obviously, they're all eyes are glued to see what the next update is. But for the time being, we have clear statements. And I should say that OMB did come out with its guidance, that first piece of guidance that was foreshadowed by the task force. OMB did come out with its guidance and it told federal agencies not to include the clause in new solicitations or contracts and not to enforce it where it appears. So for the time being, everyone, government contracting officers, government contractors themselves, has some real certainty for the first time about the state of play. I I think that the other little example of that certainty that is actually provided by this guidance is that the prior website guidance had a little bit of a cryptic statement that the clause would not be enforced unless an agency provided notice that it would enforce it. It was a little bit unclear what that meant. Could an individual agency decide to enforce it? We saw, for example, NASA seemed to be very aggressive in enforcing this clause. So could they, on their own, decide to enforce the clause if it was in a contract? This latest guidance from the task force makes it clear that they're going to have a unified approach and agencies should not go out on their own and decide to start enforcing it. So yeah, a positive development, I think, in terms of clarity, certainty, predictability, both for government contracting officers, also for government contractors. Gotcha. And just a curiosity point here uh, about the enforcement part of things. Are contractors worried about how the government is actually going to go about that process? You know, we've all submitted by now to either fly somewhere or something, our vaccine cards. But, you know, those can be easily gotten anywhere. Uh, You know, and if you really wanted to fake it, you probably could. Um, Are are they worried about the feasibility and just how far uh, that agencies are going to go to prove that your workforce is vaccinated if it comes to that? Yeah. So the earlier uh, substantive guidance did provide some information on the sort of record keeping that contractors needed to have for these vaccines. I don't think there was as much concern about that, at least then, as there was about the overall workforce issues that we're all so familiar with by this point. You know, folks um, who really don't want to be vaccinated, who are threatening to quit their jobs, obviously, at a time when it's hard to find uh, labor and we've got lots of urgent needs, particularly in manufacturing. So it was really that challenge, contractors being squeezed from every direction. Now, of course, we've added inflation, only making matters worse. So many things that contractors are trying to deal with as they work to fulfill government orders. I think the takeaway here is that everybody's going to keep paying attention to the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. They've ensured that we've got a bit of a cliffhanger here, and we're all going to be refreshing that website quite frequently to see when the new guidance comes out. A little bit more wait and see, and uh, you're, you're, you're staying by your phone, I imagine, <laughs> waiting for the call and ready to go out when it comes. Absolutely. <laughs> I've got a whole list of clients ready to call me as soon as it drops. Matthew Hawes is a partner at Jenner & Block, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with a link to Hawes' article on the vaccine mandate at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the podcast version of the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.